no. <laughs> okay, hi guys. Welcome to the Arm with Tracks meeting of Heroin Anonymous. My name is Kennedy and I am a heroin addict. Hi. Before we begin, please silence all cell phones. Please help me open this meeting with a moment of silent meditation followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, so usually I say the normal format, but we're gonna do it different. We're gonna just go into secretary announcements, 30 minute speaker, and then we're gonna open it up for sharing for the last however much time. Um, Heroin Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from heroin addiction. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop suffering from heroin addiction. There are no dues or fees for membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. HA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other heroin addicts to achieve sobriety. This is an open meeting of Heroin Anonymous. Everyone is welcome. Is there anyone here who is joining us for the first time and would care to introduce themselves? Hi. Bruce? Hey, Bruce. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> Josh, I'm an addict. Josh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. John. Okay. Welcome, guys. Um, I have asked a fellow addict to read a way out. Uh, and then whoever has it, uh, you can come up here and read it because we have to like record it. <laughs> Many of our members have gotten sober lots of times. Our challenge was staying sober. We were able to stop using for days, months, or even years, but we could not find a permanent solution. Eventually, we wound up in rooms like, the, like these. <clears throat> if, you, if you are a heroin addict desperately searching for a way out, we found one that, that's working for us. <clears throat> we all had our own ideas on, how, on how, how to stop using. These methods didn't work for long. If these approaches were successful, we would have quit a long time ago. Holding on to these beliefs was futile, and until we were able to let go altogether, we could never be free. We discovered a better way to live. We saw others who no longer struggled with heroin addiction and even seemed happy. They encountered us, <coughs> they encouraged us to, to go through the 12 steps like they had. By applying these principles in our daily lives, we found a new freedom a new happiness and a new way of living. We had found that successful recovery is dependent upon completion of all 12 steps. If you want a way out and are willing to work for it, then you are ready to begin. We had, here are the steps we took. We admitted we are powerless over heroin, that our lives had become unmanageable, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood him, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, Admit, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to other human being the exact nature of our wrongs. We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Uh, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings, made a list of all persons we, we had harmed and became willing to make amends to all of them, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others, continued to make personal recovery and when we were wrong promptly admitted, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our consciousness contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps we tried to carry this message to heroin addicts and to practice these principles in all of our affairs when we sincerely applied the 12 steps to our lives 
We found long-term success in sobriety. We are not asked to do this perfectly. We strive for progress, not perfection. We have found a way out of our suffering and simply wish to share what worked for us. In our fellowship, you will see heroin addicts helping each other, freely passing on their experience to those who are desperately searching for an answer to their own heroin addiction. Okay, um, I've asked a fellow addict to read the long form of the seven tradition while we pass the basket. Feel free to place your court cards and donations in the basket and I will have them signed for you at the end of the meeting. Um, oh wait, am I? If you do not have a home group and would like to join the Armwood Tracks group, please see me. Oh wait, no, no, no. Wh whoever has a seventh tradition, come read it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, I'm B. I'm an addict. Hey, B. Uh, seventh tradition of heroin anonymous long form. The HA groups themselves ought to be fully supported by the voluntary contributions of their own members. We think that each group should soon achieve this ideal that any public solicitation of funds using the heroin anonymous name is highly dangerous, whether by groups, clubs, hospitals, or other outside agencies. That acceptance of large gifts from any source or contributions carry any obligation, whatever is unwise. Then too, we view so much concern that UTA treasuries would continue beyond prudent reserves to accumulate funds for no stated HA purpose. Experience has often warned us that nothing can so surely destroy our spiritual heritage as all disputes over property, money, and authority. Thank you. Okay, now, if you do not have a home group and would like to join the Armed with Tracks group, please see me or any of our home group members after the meeting. Would all home group members please raise their hands? All right. Um, okay, so now we're going to do secretary now. A little different tonight. Um, can I have a literature report? Eric, you're on at it. Right, right Wait. Literature? Is it? Oh, I I forgot Marco's a treasurer now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we have some HA pamphlets up here. Um, it, we work, Heroin Anonymous works out a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as our basic text. If you need a big book, they are for sale up there. If you can't afford one, we'll be happy to buy you one. Um, if you need anything literature related, come talk to me after the meeting. Sweet. Thank you. Thanks, sir. For sure. All right, can I have a treasurer's? Uh, oh, well, I'll give him a minute, actually. Um, podcast announcement. <laughs> we record our speakers at this meeting. You can listen to tonight's speaker and past speakers on any of your podcast apps on Podbean. Just go to Armed with Tracks, and you can listen to uh, any speakers that have spoken this meeting. Sweet. Thank you. Okay. Um, and... I guess we will pass out chips now. All right. Eric's still heroin addict. Um, just filming in tonight. We're a hot mess tonight. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so we give out chips to celebrate various nights of sobriety. Um, starting with a newcomer, but on the theme of being a hot mess tonight, we're out of newcomer chips. If you want one, we'll have them next week. But if you'd like to come up, get recognized. Uh, we do have 30 day chips. Does anyone celebrate 30 days? 60 days? 90 days? 6 months? 9 months? Any birthdays? Sweet. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta celebrate something, you know. <laughs> couldn't leave, couldn't leave that just not with anybody, you know. Okay. Um. How about a treasurer's report? All right. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm a heroin addict. Marco. Um. We had a previous balance of twenty four eighty seven. We took in sixteen dollars and thirty five cents uh, in the contribution. So thank you. Uh, that gives us a total balance of forty one dollars and twenty two cents. 
Kimon also you can donate at or on Venmo at OC underscore dot eight or not dot, sorry. Let's try that again. Venmo. At OC underscore HA if you want to do it that way. Thank you. Sweet, thank you. Okay, um well tonight we're just gonna have a thirty minute speaker and it is Kevin. Alright guys, a little disclaimer. Super active in HA for since I first got sober. Good, good friends with Eric. I've been avoiding speaking at this meeting since its inception just because I don't want to be recorded. And um, if you've ever seen me take a selfie, you will know I get spastic anytime there is some type of recording or pictures or anything like that. So this is going to be pretty fun. <laughs> We're going to make it weird. So my name is Kevin. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. I identify as an alcoholic in, in HA meetings, and that doesn't mean I don't love heroin or meth or crack. I identify as an alcoholic in HA meetings because we're all inclusive. So if you're here for drinking, fuck yeah, you know, if you like to shoot your alcohol or just shoot your dope in HA, we can do that. If you like to smoke crack, run it, you know, everybody's welcome here. Um, if you're here for smoking pot, because I am a hard bottom alcoholic and drug addict. Um, I also like to say that I'm grateful to be here. And if you go to enough meetings, you hear that all the fucking time, you know? And I don't mean it like in a AA sense, and nothing against AA, I love AA, or, you know? I mean it in a sense that I'm grateful to be here because, because I shouldn't be. Um, I'm the guy that couldn't get sober. I'm the guy that spent four years of my life just in treatment alone. Forget about jail and everything else. I'm the guy that couldn't get past 90 days. I'm the guy that totaled about seven cars. I'm the guy that used to use like there was no tomorrow. Um, pretty much knocked on death's door every time I had a chance. Um, then I would wake up the next day, still be alive, regretting that I actually survived the night before and my friends wouldn't make it. And instead of, you know, it always sucks when you lose friends. You, you, you do drugs long enough, you come to HA long enough, you stick in recovery long enough, you're gonna lose people. Um, but it was kind of, it was more like why him and not me, you know? Um, and we'll kind of get to that. So just to show of hands, and I like to do this when we leave, just to kind of, bring everything into perspective. How many people here, and I don't mean like some kid you met on Facebook or somebody you went to treatment. How many people here have lost somebody that they really love to the disease? Raise your hand. How many people have lost more than one? How many people have overdosed? So if you look around the room, that's pretty much all of us. This is a small meeting tonight. I assure you, if we had 200 people in here, 200 hands would be up. And that means that for alcoholics and addicts, death is not uncommon. It's, it's living, that is, you know? So if we're in this room, that's something to be grateful for, you know? Even though sometimes we lose perspective. I lose perspective all the time. And if we're in here and we feel like life doesn't have meaning, God knows I've been there, I'm not there today, I may be there tomorrow, my meaning is to live for the people that can't. Because I don't know a single addict that died wishing they didn't have to use that day, you know? I mean, Eric can account on how many intakes have been set up for people to get into detox that needed to use one last time. And I get it, dude. I needed fucking use kicking and screaming right off the plane. You know, we always need to use one last time, but it was their last time, you know? Every intention of getting sober, did not want to live like that anymore. Couldn't make it 24 hours. I'm not really gonna tell my story because I don't tell my story much because it doesn't matter. You know, we all came from different places. We all grew up a little different, but it all took us to the same place, regardless of the substance. For me, um, the 20 years, 20 plus, maybe 22 years I spent using and trying to get sober, um, didn't qualify me for things that most people got qualified for in their 20s and their 30s when they were going to school and building careers and everything else. There's a lot of things I don't know about. I don't know about politics, although I do like to argue, because um, that's always fun. Um, 
I don't know about modern medicine, although I did play a doctor in my addiction and I was pretty fucking damn good at it. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I do, I do know about pain. I do know, I do know what it's like to wake up in the morning and to not be able to look myself in the mirror. I know what it's like to not be able to look somebody else in the eyes out of fear that they might see what's looking back. That um, was so desperately trying to hide. I know, um, I know that feeling of loneliness. I know that crippling fear of the unknown. I know, I know that feeling of hopelessness. And uh, most importantly, I know that feeling of being fucking trapped, like trapped. Um, I don't know most of you guys in this room, but one thing we all have in common is we know things about each other that nobody else knows. For instance, we, we know what it's like to say, this is gonna be my last night drinking, or this is gonna be my last night using, and I'm getting my Suboxone tomorrow, and everything's gonna be okay. Um, I need to finish the dope tonight. If I could just finish this all tonight, then there's a fresh start tomorrow. I got my subs, I got a meeting lined up. I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna do this know what it's like to wake up in the morning with all the vigor in the world, 120% we're putting into it and, and fighting in our head. Hey, I brushed my teeth without shooting up. Like, that's a win, right? You know, <laughs> fucking make it till 10 a.m., make it till 11. I had coffee and not crack. That's another win, you know? Um, and everything we could possibly do and almost make it to a lunch break at work or whatever, wherever the breaking point may be. For me, it was usually around noon. But it wasn't that time where I gave up fighting because I still had that willingness and I was still trying the best I could. Here's the thing. My biggest will inside me can put up this white knuckle fight and my disease doesn't have to yell. It doesn't have to fight. It doesn't have to strain itself. All it has to do is whisper. Just text him. Because I have a disease of rationalization and manipulation. And it laughs at me when I try to get sober on my own will. And as soon as I text them, I will stand up my family on Christmas morning. I have, but I will not stand up my fucking drug dealer. I will not have all of his money, but I will not stand up my drug dealer. <laughs> we will deal with that when we get there. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about what was different this time. And, and everything else, and we're gonna start talking about spiritual experiences, and that's, that's different for everybody. For me, uh, I'm to talk about suicide, because it's a big part of my story. Um, obviously, I'm still here, so I wasn't successful. I don't think anybody really wants to be successful at suicide. I didn't even think I really wanted to kill myself. I just knew I didn't wanna go on living. And I knew I had tried to get sober so many times, and I've seen it work for other people, and I've, I've heard it in the rooms and I've seen people like go to meetings and have meaning in their life. And that's all I fucking wanted. I didn't want, I didn't want the job. I didn't want the girl. I just wanted a fucking purpose. Like, you know, so I would see guys in AA 10, 12 years sober, had absolutely nothing, but they had this sense of peace and contentment that was so fucking elusive to me. And it bewildered me. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, like what? Like, and it was the simple things, but, um, for me, when Narcan came around, um, it was a lifesaver. And it is, it's a lifesaver, it's a miracle. For me, it was absolutely terrifying because I wasn't so terrified of overdosing. Like I really tried my best. Without actually putting in a concrete effort, I really tried my best to use recklessly in the hopes that I would not wake up the next morning, you know? Um, and it wasn't, wasn't the fact that of overdosing or dying that scared me, it was the fact of, of being revived. You know, um, and all those feelings that I talked about prior brought me to a place where um, I had saved up enough in my hustling and fucking like I got to tell you, my last my last year out there wasn't I wasn't high, it wasn't fun. I was sick more than I was up because I was always trying to kick. I was in that perpetual state of kicking. I had no I had no insurance. I had no money. I had a family that would have loved to have helped me, if not just to have a break for 30 days. Like my father like, was more at peace and happy when I was in jail 
than, than anything because he's, he was like, I know you're not going to die tonight. You might get raped, but you're not going to die. And rape is a personal problem. So have fun, you know? Um, so he would have been more than happy to help me, but I, I didn't have, I couldn't look him in the eyes and tell him this time was going to be different because I didn't believe it for myself. You know, it was just devoid of anything, any hope. Um, and I'd saved up enough to, uh, to get uh, about a half a bundle of dope, which is about five, well, half a sleeve, which is about five bundles and about 250 Xanax. And um, I had had a hotel picked out about 300 miles away where nobody would know where I was and I wouldn't have cell phone service. And my, my, my thing was gonna be when I check in, tell them not to clean the room for three days. By three days, I should be, I should be cold and blue gone enough where nobody's gonna care or nobody's gonna be able to do anything about it. And for me, that's where my disease took me, you know? We talk about a spiritual experience and, and for everybody it's different. And, you know, I don't like, I don't like really speaking about a higher power because it's such a personal thing and everybody's conception's different and I want to be really careful not to impose mine. But there was a series of events that happened revolving uh, a best friend of mine that had passed away. And I don't, like, I've lost so many fucking people, but this kid was different, you know? Um, he's that kid I got high with my whole life. He's that kid that knows what it was like to want to get sober no matter what. You know, we knew that struggle. Like, we could confide in him, like we could confide in people in the rooms, or I just happened to know him my whole life. So he would go to treatment, I would go to treatment, we'd be doing good, we'd meet up for dinner once or twice, we'd be back to the same shit. We would co-sign each other's stuff, you know, Suboxone sober, Xanax sober, hey, I'm not here to take anybody's inventory, if you're not putting a needle in your vein, you're not dying today, fucking run it, you know what I mean? Just don't take chips. Um, and that's not what Suboxone, you can take chips with Suboxone. For me, um, I was doing the whole counting down days and self-detoxing, and I got a phone call from somebody I said, I'm sorry to hear about your boy. And it was that kid that was not sorry to hear about my boy at all. He's just the one that wanted to tell me first. We know what that's like, you know? Um, and I really, something had clicked in my head, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't, um, I didn't grieve at all. I take death very differently. You know, it was really just Mikey, you stupid son of a bitch, you know, but something was different at that moment. And uh, through a series of events that I'm not gonna go into details, I had called somebody and spoke openly about my suicide for the first time in my life. You know, and it was somebody that I had known out here. You know, at first I had told her I had slipped and she's like, all right, we'll just pick yourself up, slugger. You know, meanwhile, I'm in the depths of heroin addiction, <laughs> pick myself up. She's like, ah, you'll be all right, hang in there, champ. I'm like, okay. She's like, all right. She's like, if I was to test you now, what would you come up for? I'm like, oh, I'll smoke some crack last night and this and that. She's like, you didn't fucking slip. She's like, you're a full-blown junkie, dude. You know, um, and she didn't want to help me until I told her the details. And, you know, I got a chance to come out here again. You know, this, this time, this was like my sixth treatment facility. And she, uh, I was so broke, I actually had to hit up a scholarship for my, for my plane fare um, to get somebody to pay for my plane fare out here. She, she would help me with treatment and she would help me with detox, but she wouldn't help me with train fare. And I, I couldn't ask my family. And I came out here and I don't remember like those last few days in New York. And it wasn't because I was faded, because I really wasn't. Um, it's just everything just happened so quick where I didn't get a chance to think about it, which is probably the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, and I didn't really come to till I was in detox. And of course, you know, wanting to do things my own way. You know, I get to detox, I'm fucking flying. The detox tech is like, hey, we'll have comfort meds for you in like 12 hours. I'm like, that's cool. I got a half a bundle in my ass. Don't worry about it. You, I don't need Suboxone for like four days. Hold off on that. Leave me alone. Um, because I just, and it wasn't about getting high, I just did not have faith that anybody knew how to detox me. Um, and as I'm coming to in treatment after, in detox, after like the second day, I started flushing my stuff. And um, a lot of people, and for me, other times when I came into uh, treatment or detox or whatever it was, it was always that sense of relief, that sense of peace, that sense I'm safe, you know? Uh, safe from myself, safe from the outside world. It's, it was just like a load lifted all other times. This time was different. I didn't, I didn't feel any of that um, because I didn't think it was gonna fucking work. Moreover, I felt a lot of survivor's guilt that I was getting a chance when so many good people were out there dying. You know, why did my boy die? Why did this 20 year old girl die? Why is this kid that has no money either that really wants this, that might actually do something with it, why is he not getting a chance and I am? You know, and I, I had at that point just on my knees praying to something I didn't know what the fuck I was praying to and crying and do, taking every suggestion 
And at that point, it was like, you know, I'm going to do whatever the fuck it takes for a year. And I've made that promise before. You know what I mean? And if it doesn't work for me, then I'm going to go out not to use, but to use to die within like five days. It's like we, we could just put that plan on hold. Like that was your plan. Okay, let's just put that on hold for like a little bit, you know, and we'll try this. And if it doesn't work, and it wasn't try this for me at that time, it was, it was trying it because somebody else believed in me. And somebody else believed my life was worth living when I sure as fuck didn't, you know? And um, I know that's not the way to do it, but that was that sense of loyalty in me was enough to keep me motivated. Um, and I did everything that they told me to do. I got up, I went to morning meetings. I was at my friend's treatment center and a lot of people when they're at their friend's treatment center, they're like, hey, it's my friend's place. I can get away with this, this and this and call them. For me, it wasn't like that. It's like, hey, I'm at my friend's place and I have to be the best fucking client that's fucking here. Like, you know what I mean? I have to live up to something. And I did everything, dude. And it wasn't the first time I did everything. Here's the difference. It's the first time I continued to do everything. You know, so I was going to morning meetings. I was going to night meetings. I was working with a sponsor, you know, and I was actually working the steps this time um, in a different way. So when we talk about step one, we talk about how we were powerless and our lives was unmanageable. It's like, you know, that's an acceptance step. I accepted I was a drug addict. I accepted I was an alcoholic. Like I accepted that stuff. I accepted it so much that I accepted I was gonna live an alcoholic life and I accepted I was gonna die an addict death and I just could not come quicker for me. You know, my last year out there, you know, I was tossing and turning, trying to calculate how long my father had to live because my father had to bury my mother. I didn't wanna to have to have him bury me. So I'm thinking my father might have 12 years left, I only need to live 12 years in one day. When I, you know what a sad place that is when you're calculating the mortality of your father so you can fucking die? So that alcoholic lifestyle was all I had known and had subscribed to, to the bitter end. Um, so when we talk about step one being accepted step, yeah, I accepted that, accepting that there's a way out. That was something different, you know what I mean? Um, so step one wasn't so much just about acceptance. It's more of a surrender step for me. And uh, I had a problem with the word surrender. Uh, it's been a big concept in my recovery. I mean, that's where I find peace. And surrender isn't about losing because when it comes to alcohol and drugs, I sure as fuck was not winning, you know what I mean? Like, look at the track record, like, you know? Um, surrender means to stop fighting. It, it means to give up resistance. And my whole life, I am fighting to continue to drink and get into a fight with my girlfriend or fucking sit at home and get drunk with the dog because that's, that's, that's my existence, you know what I mean? Or like, you know, if I'm fucking fighting to shoot dope and be depressed and suicidal or, or fighting to smoke meth. And it's like, you ever fight with a tweaker? You're not gonna fucking win. So it's like, why am I fighting for a tweaker lifestyle, dude? It's like, what's the, what's like the, the, pot, the pot at the end of the rainbow, dude? Like dumpster sex and VCRs? Like, what am I fucking holding on so fucking tight for? Um, so the concept of surrender wasn't about losing. It was about being the bigger man and walking away, you know? So when those voices would come up in my head, it's like, hey, bro, not today. Um, you know, we hear about the obsession being lifted. Part of the miracle for me, you know, and it wasn't lifted all at once, but it was lifted at the most crucial points in my recovery. It was lifted when I had to make a major decision. You know, that's when clarity came into play and I was able to make those transitions and it was really big decisions in my first year. And then we talk about step two, you know, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. And, uh, you know, that's a, personal, that's a personal journey for everybody. I had a higher power in my first year that served me very well. Eric knows my story, we'll kind of we'll pick up on that later. Um, if you stay sober long enough, that concept will evolve, you know? And then step three, made a decision to turn our, our, our lives over the care of God as we understood him. This is a, was an action step for me, as it was explained to by my sponsor. It's that made a decision. This is the first time I actually had to take something and trust. It was a trust step which is really fucking hard for a drug addict like me. 
you know, or from the places we've came from. We've all, we hung out with junkies and fucking tweakers our whole lives. How the fuck can we trust anybody? You know what I mean? Like we've been fucked over our whole lives. Like think about it, in my past life using, would I ever leave my wallet on the counter? Like ever, anywhere? Like, you know what I mean? There was nothing in it, but would I leave anything on the fucking counter, dude? Was I gonna trust somebody with my fucking stash? Like a trust step. Um, but I had to trust that I didn't fucking know everything. I had to trust in my sponsor. I had to trust in the fact this worked for other people. I had to trust in the fact that maybe there was a God that fucking loved me and had a plan for me. Um, I don't know if anybody subscribes to the idea of destiny or fate. Um, I typically don't, but let's just say for instance, we do. Like, let's say there is a destiny. Let's say there is a fate. If there's already a plan in your favor, doesn't it take a lot of fucking pressure off us? If I have a higher power, that's working on my behalf. I only have to do X, Y, and Z. So one of the concepts that works for me, um, I was listening to a speaker and he said, you know, when he was doing his third step, you know, it was a partnership with God, you know? And he's like, well, when I first made that, it's like, it was a verbal agreement. He's like, and that didn't work for me. He's like, so I went to fucking Staples. He's like, and I got a contract, you know, a 5149 partnership agreement where I would put in the work at 49%, and he would take care of the worry, you know? He's like, and he didn't want me to help him with the worrying. He was gonna do all that. And he sure as fuck wasn't gonna help me with the work, you know? That's my responsibility. But for me, I guess the best way to describe it, um, when we think of the word serenity, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the, and the, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, at any given point in my life, if I have a higher power, he's working with me. So if it's something at the office where I need to do more work for my career, and I have to put in 80% of that and turn the other 20% over, then that's, that's, that's how the partnership goes at that moment. But then there's other things in my life where it's like, yo dog, like you could do 5%, but you gotta trust that other 95%. And if I kind of know what my part is and what God's part is, and have that balance right, that's where that serenity comes in. Then I got to my fourth step. So, one of the things with me that I had understood from my plenty of past experiences, um, there were certain things I just wasn't ready to deal with. And whenever I would get sober, whether it be two days, one week, nine days, 18 days, I start remembering shit. I start remembering shit that I didn't want to fucking remember, you know? So I could just be brushing my teeth and I remember what I did to grandma. You know, or I could be taking a leak and I remember what I did that Christmas morning or, you know, some girl that she didn't fucking deserve that, you know, and things would come up. And as I'm doing better, things would come up, try to tell me you're a piece of shit. This is what you are, you know, and I knew I couldn't deal with it at that moment, you know. So I would write all that stuff down and say, hey, I'm not equipped to deal with this right now. We'll revisit this when it's time. Right now is not the time. So by the time I got to my fourth step, and obviously I had to do all the other work with it, I had all this stuff that was building up for months. All this stuff that I thought defined me, my past, everything that told me this is what you are, this is all you'll ever be. You're not worth this, this is all you're worth, come back to me. My guilt and shame had a funny way of keeping me sick. And every time I tried to get better, had a funny way of showing up just when it went to fucking remind me. So when I did my fourth step, I had to look at all this stuff. And uh, during my fifth step, and my sponsor's like, all right, turn it over to God. And I damn near lost my shit. I'm like, you made me put this all on fucking paper. Like, turn it over to God. It's here. It's in black and white. He's like, and then you made me tell you. And who the fuck are you? Like, you know what I mean? I lost my shit. And uh, I went home and I looked at all of that stuff. And something funny happened. 95% of that stuff I did while I was in active addiction. And not just active addiction, deep addiction. You know, the other 5%, yeah, I'm fucking human. In the absence of drugs and alcohol, I'm a pretty fucking good dude. I'm none of this. And that was a moment, A, of clarity, 
but of release. Because I was, I was able to make an amends to myself. Granted, there were other amends to be made, but I was able to make an amends to myself for being an addict and an alcoholic on the condition it was a living amends and I do everything in my power to not be that person today and take responsibility for my recovery. And that's a daily amends, but it's putting my recovery first and continuing to move forward. And by doing that, I allowed my past to stop defining me. So all the things that I thought I was, I no longer was anymore, which allowed me to open myself up to all the things I could be, you know? And I'm, I'm 37 at this time, you know what I mean? I didn't get sober at a young age, you know? And I'm 37 just getting to learn myself and, and know myself, and it was a turning point right there. Um, then we had to look at our resentments, and we had to look at our part in it, which was another turning point because all my other experiences with recovery, I needed to blame somebody. It's this one's fault. My mother died, my dad, my brother. Da, 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 da. And in the center of all that, it was nobody's fucking fault. I grew up in a great family, had every opportunity allotted to me. I pissed all of them away. I pissed all over my family. I pissed all over my opportunities. Like, these were all decisions I made. You know, my father, I was really good. I was really good at playing that guilt and that manipulation on my family for so long um, because of their codependency. And it got to the point where it's like, this is nobody's fault, this is mine, which is okay. That's great, because if it was my fault, then I could take responsibility. I'm no longer a victim. I'm not a victim. I have, I have control, I have power, you know? And I can make different decisions moving forward. And that was a liberating experience for me. And then we get to all those fucking fears, and those are fun. <laughs> um, when we got to step six, um, I had had all this stuff written down. These are actually the two steps that, that meant the most to me and continue to mean the most to me because these are the ones I have to work on, on every day. And it says, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So I had my selfishness, I had my insecurity, I had my greed, I had my dishonesty, you know, on and on and on. You know, any given day, those things can change. Here's the key words there. We were entirely ready. It wasn't gonna work for me if I wasn't entirely ready. And I'm not gonna fucking lie to you, there was a lot of things I was not entirely ready for that I held on to for a while. And there's some shit today I'm still not entirely ready for. Um, but the most important things I was able to turn over. So being entirely ready, like I was entirely ready to have God remove my alcoholism. I was entirely ready to have God remove my most, well, uh, let me be careful how I phrase that. <laughs> uh, most of my self-seeking, you know, if it was entirely ready to have God remove that obsession. When I'm entirely ready and on my knees and begging for mercy, that stuff manages to work itself out, you know? But if I'm not entirely ready, it's not gonna work. And then we get to step seven, humbly asked him to remove all of our shortcomings. So when you read it like this, it's a little tricky because for me, when I read it like this, it was like, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings, meaning if I pray humbly, they'll be removed. And that's not the way it works. It takes, it takes action, you know? You could drop to your knees every fucking day, but if you don't put action behind it, it's not gonna work. So I, I mean, I work another program, um, which is different type of spirituality. And part of that is, is retraining the way we think, retraining the way we perceive, you know? Um, so actually I'm working with somebody right now and we're doing six and seven and I'm like, dude, it's not about all the things that you shouldn't do. Let's just work on the things you should, you know? So let's, instead of saying, stop being a selfish piece of shit, how about this, just be a little generous today, you know? And starting to cultivate more good things. And as I'm cultivating those counteractive or, or, or um, characters, you know, the other ones start to subside. But that's an everyday thing. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. All right, so there was some shit I did. <laughs> um, here's the thing with amends, man. Then um, we could just jump to nine too, because they go together. Made direct amends to such people whenever possible. I had to be really careful because I had tried getting sober so many times before, so nobody wanted to hear my shit at 60, 90 days, because they've heard it before, you know? And I didn't want to say it because at that time, I still didn't think it was going to be fucking different. 
Um, the other things with amends is everybody gets these amends lists and they're, they're all gun ho I'm gonna get shit done. Do your fucking amends. That's for sure But there are certain amends that we sh should probably look is it gonna bring harm to somebody else? Is it selfish? You know a lot of times amends can be very imposing on people at least in my case, you know where it's not Maybe I shouldn't go knock on so-and-so's door. Maybe I don't want to fucking hear it <laughs> uh, Maybe now is not the time but became entirely became entirely ready um, uh, whatever, <laughs> it's up there somewhere. Um, if that opportunity does present itself organically, I'm ready to do that. So for me with my family, <sighs> shit, I had such a good family, dude. For me with my family, you know, East Coast Italian, we don't, we don't talk much about shit. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just not how we do shit. You know, I think my amends, the real amends came to my father. My second trip home, I was probably around two years sober or something like that. Um, and when I had left, I had a, had a bunch of suits and stuff hanging up, like dry cleaned in the closet. And, um, you know, I came back and I'm looking for some of my stuff because I haven't been home to New York much. And I'm like, Dad, where's my stuff? He's like, ah, it's, it's in the closet. It's in, that, it's in that bag. And I go in that bag and he has all my suits and shit fucking like crumpled up and thrown into a garbage bag, like stuffed in the back of the closet, you know? And he's like, it was a mess. It was all over the place. I'm like, it was, it was dry cleaned, hanging up in the closet. But just kind of putting myself in my father's head as I leave for treatment again, where he is and how frustrated and how fucking hurt, you know, to take all my shit and throw it like that. I'm like, all right, that, you know, no big deal. Do me a favor, it was my last day there. Uh, I was getting ready to catch a flight in a couple hours. I'm like, just take these suits and just have them dry cleaned. You could throw the rest away. Just have, just have them dry cleaned. Like, ah, what do you need them dry cleaned for? I'm like, just, just do me a favor, just have them dry cleaned. I'll give you the money, you know, or just go pick them up. I'll drop them off, just go pick them up. Hey, what do you need them for? It's like, it just, Please. He's like, what? In case I die, you you want you want a suit to wear the funeral? I said, if you fucking die, I'm not even taking the flight back. This is for something important, you know. And he starts he starts laughing. You know what I mean? And he looked at me and he goes, you know what? He's like, I I, I could die tomorrow knowing you'd be okay, and uh, I'm proud of you. And uh, those those are not words that my father says or my family says, you know. And and that's kind of how the amends to my father, which was the biggest one, came to be. My brother had thrown me out of the house at 25. So my mother had passed away. My father had a business, so he would bring us to work and kind of raise us at work. And 19, a lot of drug dealing at the house. And he's like, oh, look, you know, the boys will be fine there. Brother had thrown me out of the house at 25 uh, because he had a dream that he uh, it actually killed me. It actually hit me so hard and killed me that it terrified him. And my brother was a big dude, you know what I mean? That he was just afraid that he might actually do it and he wouldn't be wrong for it, you know? Um, he didn't talk to me for... 15 years, 10 years. Um, somewhere in my process of getting sober, he asked me to be the godfather to his, his firstborn son. You know, the other day I posted something on Facebook and he, he responded, so proud of you, thank you for having the strength to fix our family. You know, fix our family, fix shit, dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm the, it was the problem for so long, you know, but now I'm the adult. I drive a hybrid, he drives a Hummer. Like, you know what I mean? I make the responsible decisions now, it's weird. Um, Step 10. Anything I missed in step four, I always have step 10. You know, and there's always shit that we miss. Nobody expects us to do it perfectly. And every day is another, it's another challenge at life. It's nobody, I don't live perfectly every day, that's for sure. Um, I don't do it every day, but I do take the time to take some time down and, and write my inventories, you know, just to spot check myself because I'm not always living my most healthy spiritual life. And the less often I write that stuff down, the more unspiritual I get and the more Kevin I become. And trust me, we don't need more fucking Kevin in this world, I assure you. Um, step 11, so I do prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. So funny story, 2020 happened <laughs> and I had moved down to San Diego. Um, to get another job, you know, I bounced back and forth. I had moved down to San Diego to get another job. I had somehow, COVID had happened, I had lost my life savings. I had gotten laid off from that job all within a matter of about two days. Um, I had bought a puppy to fill that void inside me because me and the girl were fighting and that puppy had died. And throughout all of this stuff, I said, fuck God. And uh, I called Eric because he has that Jesus beard and those Jesus eyes and I figured he would tell me some Jesus shit, you know? 
And I was like, Eric, dude, I got a problem. He's like, what's up? I was like, I don't believe in God anymore. He's like, that's not a problem. Fuck yeah, bro. I'm like, dude, like this is, this is horribly irresponsible of you to tell me to not have a higher power. Like you should go warn people, <laughs> like not egg it on. And he's like, dude, he's like, if you got to the point in your recovery where you question your higher power, he's like, you've managed to stay sober long enough to do that, you know? He's like, so whatever worked for you in the past worked for you in the past, but it's not working for you right now. The Pope prays every day to better understand God. The Dalai Lama meditates every day to better understand the universe. Who the fuck am I to have a concrete understanding of higher power? Like, how arrogant is that? You know what I mean? Um, and I've gotten to work. I wish, wish it would have happened sooner, but funny thing about resentments, they work towards higher powers too. <laughs> uh, and I'm doing much better today. My understanding is changing. And, and, and through, I just ask to understand. I pray and I ask to understand in hopes that understanding the divine is how I refer to him now because I won't use that word anymore. And I won't use the universe because my ex-girlfriend used the word universe and that hippie shit pissed me off. Uh, so I refer to it as the divine, <laughs> uh, which I feel like was a stripper I'd known in my past life. Uh, either way, <laughs> um, I feel if I could better understand the divine, I could better understand myself. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry the message to other alcoholics. So, in my recovery, I've had the chance to do some really cool shit. And, and I, I got to work like right away, you know, and started doing H&I. I've, I've had the opportunity to build things um, that were bigger than me. You know, I've had the opportunity to sponsor some men, which fuck man are healthier than me at this point and fuck yeah dude like tyler's definitely healthier than me we can both admit that right now we could say it out loud <laughs> um and give them one year chips and, and watch them sponsor men and 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 you know um i've had the opportunity to start meetings i've had the opportunity to start fellowships you know i've had the opportunity to do some really cool stuff and one of the things that keeps me motivated in my recovery is always setting new goals you know so once I'm done with one, I try, to, I try to pick up another one. And I try to set a new goal each year. Um, because who the fuck am I? I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, so one of the things, and talking about a spiritual experience, and I'm just going to circle back to this. Um, it mentioned my boy Mikey um, that had passed away. And... Uh, I fucking missed that kid, dude. Um, I really, truly believe that um, the only reason I'm here is because his, his spirit had, had carried me through those days um, and able to bring me to a safe place. Um, I definitely do not attribute it to me. Who the fuck am I? You know? Uh, definitely don't. There were so many people that have a better understanding of a higher power. There were so many people that understand this book better than me. There are so many people that work a better program than me that are not fucking here. Um, the only difference, reason why I'm here, my roommate, through treatment, passed away. I had to give the eulogy at his funeral. My house manager got to find him dead on the bathroom floor. Um, that's just like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And they were like a bad, like he clearly knew the program better than me. He clearly was a better fucking person. <laughs> um, the only difference between me and him is I stayed willing and I kept my priorities straight. You know, I was willing to take suggestions even after I had six months or nine months. I was willing to do the things that, that aren't easy and I continue to stay that way. And that's, you don't have to work a perfect program. You just have to stay willing. So when I went back to New York my first time, it took me 14 months to go home because I had known what going home, what that has done for me um, in the past. Um, and I waited till after Christmas to go home. And I, my family couldn't understand why I was missing Christmas. Um, and uh, it's actually cool now. So my father, you know, there's things that, that got missing from the family, like a bearskin rug. And I got to give him a bearskin rug for, for our first Christmas, dude. You know, and I got to actually put things back into the family that got taken away. And I finally get to add value and add things to the family for the first time in my life. But anyway, I go home. And it was my first trip home. I was there for quick, about four days, which if you know New York, like two of those days are just travel. So I'm in and out. 
you know, and I'm getting ready to get back to the airport and I'm doing one last spin around the neighborhood and it's April and it's snowing in April. And I found myself driving down a block that I would never drive before and part of the neighborhood I would never consciously go to, you know, sometimes you just automatically drive and I'm driving down this block and I see this old fucking Guido shoveling the snow and it's 11 o'clock. So if you know anything about old school Italians on the East coast, they're waiting for the snow to fall at like 5.30 in the morning. They're just, as soon as they hear a snow alert, they're sitting there with the shovel. Like this guy would not, and he's a fireman too. He would not be shoveling his walkway at 11 o'clock. And I pick up my head and it's Mikey's father. And I had known him my whole fucking life and I panicked. And I drove around the block like in sheer terror. And I parked at the corner of Heart Race in about a thousand minutes. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say to this guy. And whenever I'm put in a decision like that, I know the hard thing is, is what I need to do. And I went back and I drove down the block and I, I got out of the car and I, Mr. Mazzo. And he looked at me and he didn't know what to expect. His jaw had dropped. And if you had known me in my past life, the way this man knew me, you know, he's right to not know what to expect. And I come closer to him and I start talking to him about stuff and, hey, how are you? And I'm oh, sorry I missed the funeral. He's like, yeah. He's like, I know, I know you were fucked up. He's like, I don't, I get it, dude, you know? I'm starting to tell him about some things and I'm starting to tell him, you know, and, and somewhere through this conversation, this man starts getting more relaxed and he starts feeling more comfortable. And, and he sees that the man standing before him is not the man that he had known for the last 20 years. And he's seen that something had changed. And at this point, he doesn't know what it was, you know? And I start talking about Mikey and I start talking about his spirit. And I start talking about how it helped me and where I've been the last 14 months. Um, and he starts talking about Mikey's spirit and how it had helped him. And I went into my wallet and I pulled out a one-year chip and I gave it to him. I said, this is for Mikey. You know, this is not, you know, it's like, I can't take that. He's like, that's not your, that's, that's yours. You earned it. I'm like, you have to understand, I didn't. He's like, if it wasn't for Mikey, I would not have this. And this man broke down in tears, crying in my arms, you know? Every year since then, I send a chip home to that man. You know, that's, that's how I, I make amends. That's, that's little things like that give my life meaning when my life doesn't have anything else, you know? Um, that charity that flew me out here, every time I have extra money, I send her money, you know? Um, my friend that scholarship me to treatment will never pick up a check around me ever. You know, I have a great job. I have friends, I have a life of purpose. I'm not always happy, <laughs> but I'm not fucking miserable. I'm not trying to figure out where's the best place to commit suicide, you know? Who do I have to rob today to get fucking high? I have money, dude, like, like fucking capitalist, dude. I have white girl problems, you know? Not if you're in this room. If you're a white girl in this room, you have real problems. But I have like Laguna Beach white girl problems. Like you two girls, you guys got real problems. Um, and my life is good, man. My life is good. Thanks for letting me share, guys. Yeah.